6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. See, the day of the Lord starts with the second coming in power, and it goes until the, uh, uh, this destruction. The day of the Lord closed at the end of the millennium when the destruction of the heavens and the earth in Revelation 20 and 21 detail that. They shall pass away with a great noise. That's not really quite what it says. The word is residon, which is a word used for the swish of an arrow, the rush of wings, the splash of water, the hiss of a serpent. It's translated great noise, but that's a little misleading. It's not a big bang. It's something even subtler, perhaps. And the elements, and the word there is uh, stokia, which is uh, the basic building blocks. Elements is a good translation. Uh, shall melt with a fervent heat. And the word melt, by the way, is to untie or loose. See, that's the, this all comes out of the consist of, of, of um, Colossians. But then Peter continues, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And conversation, of course, in the Old English is behavior. We use the term a little differently, and that's one of those things about the King James. There's about there's four or five of these words you have to relearn. Not a big deal, but holy behavior, if you will, and godliness. Ought ye to be. How, shall then, how, how then shall we live? Do the realities of all of this impact our priorities? Probably not. It's sort of academic. Is the world really going to come to an end? Yes. And it's going to impact everybody. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the, of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, Peter asks. And uh, by the way, you can hasten this. Did you know that? You can hasten this. In the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's talking about a kingdom. And where's that kingdom? It says so in the prayer. On earth. Not in the heavenlies. Not some kind of fuzzy, fuzzy, running around, floating on clouds, playing a harp. Those idioms are obviously childish. It's all going to help bring in the fullness. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So devoutly to be wished. And the world number three. First world was destroyed prior to Genesis chapter 2, apparently. And the second one we're observing. And the third one is forthcoming, presumably. And this one will have righteousness dwelling in it. What puzzles me is if God can create the universe in six days, why does it take Christ a thousand years to get it presentable to give to the Father? Ooh. That's another study for another time, but I thought it keep it stirred up here a little bit. Um, God dynamically sustains the universe, including the very atoms themselves. That's what the scripture is telling us here. 
Atoms, it seems, are stable only because the force and energy are being supplied into their nuclear binding fields from outside the system. That's a shock. That's why these things, the electrons don't slow down. You'd think they would, wouldn't you? God is not only the creator of the universe, he's the sustainer of the universe. He's not uninvolved, remote or detached or impersonal, leaving things to run for themselves. No, no, no. He's very actively required. He energizes all things according to the counsel of his own will. He cares about the sparrow that falls to the ground, and the widow, and the orphan, and the homeless, and you. He cares. That's astonishing. That's, that's almost impossible to get your mind around. That he cares, individually, for each of us. That's mind-blowing. God does not lose track of his children, but watches over them with infinite, patient, intimate, precise, fatherly care. He also intervenes from time to time to alter the status quo in response to prayer. Really? Yes. And even alters the course of entire nations. He moved the entire Roman world to have a census, to get a guy and his pregnant wife to move 20 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. How did he do that? He had a, he had, I mean, wild when you think about it. Well, anyway, let's get back to our text. You thought we'd never get there, I'm sure. We're down to verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. Head of the body. The body of Christ is the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. Why? Because he's the head of the body. He's going to have preeminence in all things. Who is the beginning? He's the originator. The Alpha and the Omega, using the Greek of Revelation. He's the Aleph and the Tau, using the Aleph and the Tau of the Old Testament. In uh, Zechariah 12.10, uh, they shall look upon me whom they've pierced. And between the me and the whom, there's two letters that are untranslated, an Aleph and a Tau. The beginning and the end. And we find that all through. The Aleph and the Tau with a Mekef, a connector, is, is a, a, a grammatical structure requirement. But the Alpha and Tau floating by itself is an illusion. If it was in Greek, it's the Alpha and the Omega. Who's it talking about? Jesus Christ, interestingly enough. As the body of Christ, notice it's not the body of Christians. It's the body of Christ. The church is not merely a society, but it's defined in terms of its organic communion with Christ. So we're talking about something supernatural here. We're talking about something mystical here. We're not talking about organizations, uh, the XYZ church. No, no, no. And that's it. No, we're talking about the organic union with Christ, the ecclesia. It's used in here in a, in a very special sense. Let's not get those two senses confused. In all things that he might have preeminence, proteo, which is no, used nowhere else in the New Testament. And yet it's the theme of this entire epistle, in effect. The preeminence of Christ. That's Paul's primary argument against all these false ideas. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. What on earth does that mean? It pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell, whatever there is. Paroma, the sum total of all divine power and attributes. 
That's a favorite, see, that happens to be a favorite term. The fullness is a favorite term of Gnost, in, not, not in the Gnostic literature. And Paul uses it eight times in this letter to feed the proper use of that vocabulary back to them, if you will. For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, is the more literal translation of the Greek. God the Father was in him. God the Holy Spirit was in him in full measure. And the word dwell, katokeo, to reside, to be at home permanently, is the concept in the Greek. So, and the verb indicates that this fullness was not something to be added to his being that was not natural to him, but that it was part of his essential being as part of his very constitution, and that permanently. And that's a quote from Dr. West's uh, word studies, uh, who was considered one of the experts in the, in the word study, that this is part of his essential being. So that's okay. God is fully manifested in Christ. That's hard for us to fully appreciate. But that's the thrust of this, and that's going to come up in the next chapter. God is fully manifested in him. Socrates says to Plato a very interesting question. Socrates says to Plato back in 500 BC, he says, It may be that deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. That's an incredibly perceptive observation. Socrates recognized the dilemma. If the deity can forgive sins, he compromises his own laws. He's a bad judge. And yet to preserve, if, if, if righteousness is one of his attributes, how, does he, how can he forgive sins? There's a contradiction in preserving the law or forgiving sins. Once you acknowledge that God is perfect and we're sinners, that's an irreconcilable thing as far as Socrates is concerned. Many people don't understand the answer because they don't understand the question to begin with. Let's continue in Colossians uh, verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, and by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Wow. The blood. You and I are beneficiaries of a love letter that was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. We rarely hear this preached today. It's really astonishing, the most fantastic event in the history of man, and you don't hear it echoed from the pulpits. And then we wonder why there's such a barren landscape spiritually. He has taken care of all our needs, our most critical needs being that forgiveness. And by him to reconcile all things. There are three main truths here. Jesus taking care of all things. Jesus sufficient. All that we need is in him. God is pleased when Jesus is honored and given preeminence. And I love Hal Lindsey's acronym that he develops from the word grace. I think this is a terrific, uh, I steal it all the time, but I want to give Hal the acknowledgement. That's where I learned it. I think it's terrific. He, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it's possible for God, as a righteous judge, to forgive our sins without compromising the law or His righteousness. Because it's paid. It's not a judge that says, well, we'll just let that one go. No, no. That debt has been paid by His Son. And since it's paid, He can forgive us. And we contribute nothing to the bargain. We're just beneficiaries of that transaction. Christ made it possible 
for the Father to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. He wanted to forgive, and that made it possible he could do so without violating his righteousness, because Christ paid the price. And I think you and I are going to spend an eternity discovering what it really cost him. Reconcile. To reconcile completely. That's all through the, the, the epistles, of course. There are two distinct reconciliations. At Calvary, by the death of Christ, the barrier because of sin was taken away judicially, uh, enabling God to show mercy where judgment was deserved. The work of God alone in which man had no part. The second reconciliation was wrought by God in the sinner himself, whereby he becomes changed in his rebellious attitude toward God, so that he is persuaded to receive the reconciliation already accomplished at the cross. The word reconciliation is used both ways, if you will. And in this we do have a part as ambassadors to Christ. Bearing the word of reconciliation which is committed to us and uh, by beseeching uh, men, spreading the word. We, we uh, demonstrate that. So let's summarize all this. In verse 15, we had Christ's relationship to the Father. In verse 16 17, we have Christ's relationship to the creation. In verses 18 19, we have his relationship to the church or the ecclesia. And then finally, we have Christ's relationship to the cross. Continuing here, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. That's the second part of the reconciliation there. Man is never called upon in Scripture to make his own peace with God. You can't do it. Christ did it for you by paying the price. It was in heaven that sin began, and it's on the earth it was finished. For, for the apostle, assurance always had to be present tense. And while God's election is not vacillating, it can be affirmed only in terms of the profession in Romans 10, conduct in 1 Corinthians 6, and the witness of the Spirit. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. See, the purpose of reconciliation is personal holiness. God does not make peace so that we can continue to be his rebels. Made peace so that we can have the room to change. There's a twofold headship here, overall creation as, and as head of the church. Continuing, if we continue in faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which we have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. See, false teachers are attempted to move them away from the hope of the gospel. That was really what they were doing. The unsaved are without hope. That's a heavy, heavy thing, but certainly true. There is no hope held out in Scripture that the sad inhabitants of infernal regions will ever be reconciled to God. They are indeed hopeless. That's a concept we have a hard time embracing. We cannot imagine being hopeless. No hope. A tough thing to deal with. But that's the reality. And there's that word, if. Translated since. This is not a conditional clause that is based on the future. The if that Paul uses here is the if of argument. It does not mean that something shall be if something else is true. Rather, it means that something was if something else is true. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, 
which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. See, endurance is proof of the reality, is what he's really saying. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Wow. And this really, uh, when Paul, you may recall, was arrested in Jerusalem on false charges, the Jews listened to his defense until he used the word Gentiles. And then there was just a riot that broke out. And it was that word that infuriated them and drove them to ask for his execution. So the tensions between Paul and the Jews is intense. He was called to preach to the Gentiles. He had passion for them, though, and that's why he didn't sign the letter so they would read his letter, namely the Epistle to the Hebrews. But anyway, had Paul compromised with the Jews and stopped ministering to the Gentiles, he could have been spared a great deal of suffering, is his point. The idea is to be understood from the standpoint of the Hebrew concept of corporate personality as illustrated in Jesus' graphic statement concerning his church. Remember Christ's statement to Paul. In fact, his first statement that we're aware of in Acts chapter 9, where God says, Why persecutest thou me? Paul wasn't persecuting Christ. He was killing Christians. But Christ's point of view, you are attacking me. There's that organic union that is alluded to here. And it's a corporate concept in the, in the Hebrew mind, in a sense. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The you being Gentiles. The Colossian church was primarily uh, Gentile. Wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God. And here we go into a whole thing on dispensations. I will spare you, but be recognized that that oikonomia uh, is uh, economy or stewardship. Paul's dispensation or assignment in God's redemptive plan was specifically to make salvation known to the Gentiles. That means he was not one of the twelve. That means in Acts chapter 1, Matthias, which they elected by lot, is appropriate because the twelve apostles are going to rule over the twelve tribes. Paul won't be. He's an apostle of the Gentiles. And uh, we develop all that in the kingdom. There's reasons, but we'll get into that. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. The word mystery is a strange word in the Greek. In, in the world of the first century, mysterion, that Greek term, really meant something mysterious, yes, a, an initiatory religious rite it was used for. It was a secret known only by divine revelation in different usages here. And the broad use by Paul here is in that third category. And uh, the word mystery is really is referring to sacred secrets made known to the initiated. These divine secrets could never have been discovered by human reason, especially limited by observing a uh, cursed creation. As you look at the creation, you are held accountable to understand God as a creator. But you can't determine the redemption from their creation because it's a cursed creation. Yes, you can learn a great deal about God from the creation at the one hand, but you're limited because it is a post-Genesis 3 creation. Okay? There are several major discontinuities in the history of our creation. God created in the, in the six days. You know the story. When you get to Genesis 3, there's a huge curse pronounced. 
when you get to chapter 6 and the flood of Noah, that's more than just a lot of water. It changed the whole ecology of the planet Earth. Those are major discontinuities that deserve careful study. Okay. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. The riches of the glory of this mystery. He's in relation to God's redemptive plan. The mystery is corporate union with Christ. Christ in you. By which God gives righteousness and salvation. When God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. His righteousness, his attributes are what God sees. And, and uh, in Ephesians, this is a major f- focus upon the inclusion of the Gentiles in the body. The fact that Gentiles are saved is not a, something hidden in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about Gentiles being saved. The surprise that it was Paul's privilege to reveal, according to Genesis chapter 3, I mean, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, is that there would be this organic union with the Gentiles. That was an anathema to the, to the Jewish mind. And, uh, but that's that aspect of the mystery that's explicitly present here. Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect, or complete, in Christ Jesus. The whom is about a person, not a system. Our commitment is to a person, not a system. Our commitment is to a person, not a doctrine. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul preached. The word preached here is warning, announced like a herald. Paul was a, a teacher of the truth. Here he's preaching. You often wonder, how far would we go if the highway signs only told you where the roads are not going? That's one of the problems with legalism, isn't it? Okay. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Striving. Literally, this translates, for this I labor to the point of exhaustion or agonizing. Okay. And uh, the word agonizomai, which is to mean to contend, struggle with difficulties or dangers, to endeavor with strenuous zeal, strive to obtain something. It's the word from which we get agony. Okay. Our moment-by-moment existence depends upon His gracious sustenance of every electron, every atom, every molecule, and every spiritual entity as well. We are safe when we place our trust in Him and put our whole lives into His hands. That's the name of the game. Should we not stand in awe of the great God and Creator? And Psalm 95 is your reference there. I invite you to spend your devotional time in that psalm. Wow. Okay. So we have struggled our way through the second half of chapter 1. In the next session, we'll look at the dangers uh, Christ's preeminence defended. Here we are, though, we're going to, in the next session, talk about the empty philosophies and to beware of religious legalism. And that's widely uh, practiced today. So next time, you're going to study the first 17 verses of chapter 2, and we're going to explore evidences, encouragement, endearment, enrichment, enlightenment. Must be correct. They all start with E. Okay. <laughs> Let's... Let's let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I realize we've talked about a lot of technical stuff that may or may not be your meat. If you have an aptitude, I encourage you to 
to uh, discover the incredible things the Bible does say about our universe. If some of these things intimidate you, don't worry about it. Uh, just take the summaries and move on. But uh, the more you know about the frontiers of physics, and the more you know about your Bible, the more breathtaking is the convergence of those. And it's the only astonishing thing is that people that are closest to the technology seem to have trouble seeing the forest because the trees are in the way. They get so t hung up on the details they sometimes don't re realize the implications of the discoveries they're making and how tragic it is that they don't have a, a, a God-fearing worldview. But in any case, let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the depth and precision of your word. And we do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to appropriate these incredible insights, these breathtaking relationships. And Father, we just thank you for your presence. We thank you that you care for us so much that you as a father allowed your son to be insulted, spit upon, brutalized, crucified, that we might have life. We thank him for his gift to us and we thank you for your love for us to endure the passion of the Father for his Son, but to endure that so that we might indeed be reconciled, that we might be able to be forgiven, that we might have life. Oh, Father, we stagger at these truths. We do pray, Father, that you would help us through your spirit and through your word appropriate the impact of these insights into our behavior, into our priorities, that we might be more pleasing in thy sight, more effective stewards of the opportunities ahead of us as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation whatsoever in the name of Yeshua, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 